Hi and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and with me today to help mark Antibiotic Awareness Week, I have microbiologist Dr Susan Benson. Unfortunately, Tim Coe has been called away on urgent business and won't be back for a fortnight. Hi Sue and welcome. Hi Sean. Hi. So Sue, tell us a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to become a microbiologist. Um, I, um, I, became, I, I became a physician after I studied medicine, so I actually went into infectious diseases and then my boss in Brisbane told me that I'd be a better infectious disease physician and it'd help me get a job if I studied microbiology. So I thought I was just ticking up time when I went to do microbiology and then when I started doing it, I just loved it. And now it's kind of morphed a bit, so I do a fair bit of teaching around microbiology and um, I do a sort of mix of teaching and microbiology and infectious diseases, so I like the combination. Great. And what about outside of work? Have you got interests and bits and pieces there? Yeah, I was, I was really, really busy in private practice in infectious diseases and I was just realising it wasn't very healthy, so I sort of took some time off and then, um, and then I only work three quarter time now. So I've got quite a range of different interests, but I, I like salvage art. Great. And, and so I used to barter with patients. I loved it. And I really miss that about not having patient care now, apart from not having patient care, but I don't have a source for myself anymore. <laughs> I noticed you were looking at some of the artwork around the college here. I'll make sure it's all there when yes. you leave. No, it's your rubbish bins you need to watch out for. <laughs> particularly okay. if it's rusty. Okay, thanks. So, so before we get stuck into the clinical stuff, I wanted to ask a little bit about a great Australian, Howard Florey. Uh, he was described as the most important man ever born in Australia um, and his discoveries have been reported to have saved over 82 million lives. Is this accurate or is this a case of Australians talking out one of our own? Uh, this is a great question, isn't it? Because we do this in Australia a lot. I mean, even how Flory's story is really quite interesting, but I mean, we've produced some amazing people, really. I mean, so I, I, I think Ian Fraser is another one that's pretty remarkable, the fellow who um, has created the HPV vaccine, and that's fairly remarkable. So I don't know. We've got lots of great people, haven't we? But Howard Florey made it very clear that he was part of a team. Um, so there was an interesting time lag between Fleming discovering penicillin to... It sort of got buried from 1928 till Florey picked it up in the late 30s, early 40s. And they sort of found it when they were trawling through antibacterial substances. And so what Florey did was create enough of the product and do the first human trials of penicillin. But it was interesting, even in his Nobel Prize acknowledgement, he said that he was part of a team of people. Um, so he worked with Chain and there were other people in the team and they Apparently that was quite unique at that time for scientists to work together. So it was split up with people having different tasks. And it was really a combination of people that got penicillin to production phase. And, and there's an interesting story behind when they isolated it, one of the problems they had was trying to produce enough penicillin. And it was in wartime and they needed to have it to save the lives of the people who were dying of infection. So Flora was part of two of the group, which against Chain's advice, took it to America because the American pharmaceutical companies then developed it up in production. So they lost a lot of patent value in doing it, but it was what got penicillin delivered in such a short period of time so that it was released and, and, and used by the end of the war, which was really remarkable. So mm. It's an interesting story. Yeah, fantastic. So he, he put patient wellbeing ahead of profit. 
That's the other thing I noticed, because I had to read it when you told me you were going to ask me this question, but, but one of the things um, he said is that people think he did it to save mankind, but he, he was just a scientist trying to solve a problem. And so he was quite humble that he didn't set out to save the world. He was a chemist, and um, he was interested in finding this product, and it just turned out that it saved all these lives. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so if we turn to Antibiotic Awareness Week, are us naughty GPs betraying Howard Florey's legacy by dishing out antibiotics for viral infections or self-limited bacterial inf infections? Again, an, another great story, a, a great question. And I, I think that it's almost like you could give a philosophical argument because one of the things is that when Fleming first described penicillin, even in his first publications and in a number of his press releases at the time they got the prize, he warned everybody about antibiotic resistance. He had already discovered that there was resistance to penicillin. So there's an interesting story here, isn't there? Because what Flory did was produce enough penicillin so that it could be used wisely, so, so that it could be used widely, not wisely. And since that time, we've been able to, the chemists have been able to produce antibiotics in such large numbers with such low toxicity that when penicillin was first used, it was so hard to produce that it was used very selectively. Well, as we've gone to this other extreme now where this, we perceive them as having no side effects, so you could give them to lots of people and not have any, any disadvantage. And I think that's, I think there's a lesson here that we haven't really got to the bottom of, is that antibiotics are only short-term fixes. And I think what's happened is we've come to think that an infection is an antibiotic deficiency syndrome. And I don't know that we've really invested a lot of time about being accurate and thinking very much about what the infection is and also the risk-benefit equation of giving antibiotics. I find there's a certain irony that we live in this time where we're giving faecal transplants to treat people for intractable clostridium difficile and where inoculating babies at birth with the mother's flora to try and establish a normal microbiome and at the same time we've got this fear of infection that drives us to use antibiotics so I don't think we should pick on GPs they're just the ones who are doing most of the work but I think it's probably a wake-up call for us to not focus as much as on antibiotics as on diagnosis and risk benefit for what we do mm. okay thank you um, <clears throat> so, so my wife's a vet and I constantly have uh, an ongoing argument with her about antibiotic use. How guilty is the veterinary industry in antibiotic resistance? Please tell me they're the main culprits. Sure, sure. It always makes us feel good, doesn't it? I actually take uh, an opinion that I think infectious diseases physicians might be contributing to the problem as well. <laughs> um, so. I guess it's an interesting thing when we talk about biome, and, and in the end it's not particularly helpful. I mean, if you want to, sure, feel fine, but I really think it's a wake-up call for all of us to think, re to revisit how we use antibiotics, because they're always a short-term fix. If you stop to think about it, we've got normal flora that keep us healthy, and we've got these incredible cognitive biases that when we give an antibiotic, we think that the antibiotic is flowing through our bloodstream and it's going just to the urinary tract infection or just to that boil on your backside. And we're not thinking that it's actually changing all of the flora on our 
body and then it, when it goes in the sewer it's then changing the flora that's in the sewer so whether it's the animals or the vets or the GPs or I think the wake-up call is that antibiotics are not long-term strategies and we should have woken up to this mm. you know 50 years ago or when Fleming told us about it and yet we've not really invested that much in thinking about alternative strategies and that if organisms are part of our normal flora and keeping us healthy you know, Staph aureus, one in five of us are colonised with Staph aureus and it doesn't cause us any harm. If they're keeping us healthy, then any drug that knocks off our flora in, is, you know, it's like napalm, it's not a very smart strategy. And it's the inflammatory process which is what causes most of the harms. So if you're going to be really clever and you don't have a vaccine, I mean, vaccines are great, but if we were really smart to think about where would we like our therapeutic agents, it would be to interrupt the inflammatory cascade and not necessarily kill the organisms. Mm, good thought. Good thought. So part of it is looking at alternative strategies, but also I don't know that our mind can deal with the idea that antibiotics aren't necessarily low-risk drugs mm. for you as an individual who's taking it or for the community in the longer term. There's been a fair bit of interesting work done about diagnostic error. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a tricky thing to the, the thinking that's required to consider somebody when they present. And I'm not even sure if the microbiologists haven't contributed to this problem because we use a lot of fancy words for bugs and we keep changing the names. And then we get obsessed by the bugs that are resistant. You know, we use lots of acronyms, don't we? MRSA, VRE, CREs. And you know, most people have got a life. And we'd really like them to know about common things. We'd like them to know about sensitive E. coli as much as resistant E. coli and sensitive Staph aureus as much as MRSA. So maybe we could help out by making it a little bit simpler and teaching it a bit better. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel partly responsible for it. I teach the medical schools and I'm not sure that I'm doing a good enough job. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the case. Mm. Thanks. Um, so, so wrapping up, if there's one piece of advice that you would give busy GPs, what would it be? Um, it's going to sound um, a bit disrespectful, but I think we need to think. Yep. I think we're required to think. I don't think we reflex for a script pad. Yeah. And that's a tricky thing for busy GPs, isn't it? So we could probably all do with health literacy, but you know, whenever we come to treat somebody with an infection, it's helpful to think and try and explain to the patient why the infection's concerned, why the infection's occurred, what's the natural course of the illness, and what other things could be used to treat infections or to manage infections without antibiotics. 30% of urinary tract infections get better if you do nothing. And 15, 10 to 15% of the population have got a urine that would look consistent with an infection, but they're completely healthy. So don't do the test on people who don't have symptoms and consider the possibility that people get better and be more confident about being able to pick sick patients for where an intervention is required. Mm -hmm. I know that's not like a one second answer that, bads are, no. that bugs are bad and antibiotics are good, but I think this is probably one of them where we need to have you know, three sentences instead of two words. Yeah, yeah, more nuanced answer. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, thanks very much for your time, Sue. That's very informative, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Thanks, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me.